Hello, this is episode 5 of the Honey Badger Diaries. My guest for this episode is Sjors Parfos. Sjors was an engineer at Blockchain and a Bitcoin Core contributor. He still is a Bitcoin Core contributor. Uh, he's from the Netherlands, from Utrecht. That's where I'm from. We're from the same town. For those who don't know, Utrecht is the fourth biggest city in the Netherlands. Uh, it's also, uh, it's very close to Amsterdam. It's like uh, part of uh, one big suburban, no, not suburban, part of one big urban cluster. Uh, so you, you could say that uh, Utrecht is like a, a nicer part of Amsterdam, if you will. I don't know if everyone from Amsterdam will agree. Well, they'll, they'd be lying if they don't. Um, Schurz has been keeping up with the whole corona crisis in the Netherlands pretty closely. Um, I think even closer than I have, at least for the, the, the specific Dutch policy and what's going on uh, in my own country. Um, we, we probably agree on most things. I would say we've been chatting about it for the past couple of weeks or here and there, uh, you know, sort of... Uh, sending each other uh, some news or thoughts or um, what's going on so we probably agree on most things maybe at some point I'll get some people on the show that I disagree with or that disagree with me that could be interesting as well but for now I think uh, Shors is very very knowledgeable and um, it's interesting to uh, to hear his perspective I I think uh, you know what's going on in the Netherlands uh, I'm obviously biased in the sense that it's interesting for me because I live here, but I think in general it's also pretty interesting how, how the government's dealing with it here and how they're communicating it to the public and uh, and all of that. We're in uh, near lockdown at the moment, so I'm recording this on Tuesday 24th of March, and I also spoke with uh, Shores earlier today. Um, we're in near lockdown, we're, we're as close as you can get to a, until it's like a full lockdown. So essentials are open, you know, supermarkets, that sort of stuff. Um, some stores are closed, but they are allowed to be open. Um, but not all stores are open. And, and I think some types of stores aren't even allowed to be open. Or um, uh, Like hairdressers, I don't know if that's uh, considered a store, probably not, but I, th- I think hairdressers are forced closed now as well. Public transport is still running, although not as much as usual, but there's at least there's trains and there's buses. I, I guess they consider that essential in the Netherlands because uh, a lot of people don't have a car. But a lot of people actually depend on public transport, including, you know, grocery store and, and um, hospital workers and like all of these people they just need public transport to get there probably so i i'm guessing they co- consider it essential um what else i think uh i think that's all you need to know before we get to the interview i got an intro tune now i got my own intro tune so i'm a real podcast at this point with my own intro tune i'm quite quite proud of that i don't have my own logo yet i i ripped the logo i have right now i just ripped that off the internet from somewhere I'm not even 100% sure I'm allowed to use it, uh, but I'll make my own one. And uh, I, I think that will probably be the next step. I'll have, so I have my own in, intro tune, I have my own logo. This is getting this is getting real, folks. Um, 
Okay, that's it. I'll I'll leave you with the interview. You'll you'll hear the intro tune and then the interview will start. I hope you enjoy. These are the Honey Badger Diaries, the Honey Badger Diaries. Hey Shorts, how are you? Hey Aaron. Uh not bad. Switching to you? English. Switching to yeah. English, which feels slightly awkward, but um It's weird, but it's for the audience, if there is any. Yeah, so um, I like how we're doing the social distance here. We're both in Utrecht. Yeah, exactly. We're both in Utrecht, right? You're in Utrecht as well. Yeah. Yeah, So um, I I kind of know what's going on in the Netherlands, and I know what's going on in Utrecht. But still, I want to have you on, in part because uh, I want someone on from the Netherlands because I think what's happening in the Netherlands is actually pretty interesting. compared to other countries and just it's uh they they do have a pretty i don't know if it's a unique policy but at least they're being uh pretty explicit about it in a way and um and i and, and you've been following it very closely so i want to hear your perspective and hear your take on what's going on over here so maybe we can start with a sort of recap so what has been happening over the past weeks months in the netherlands with the whole corona thing yeah i mean from what i remember and i guess because it feels longer now uh the i mean it started with this news from china you know and then it became news from italy and i think i think that's sort of when government started to signal that maybe this thing will go come here as well but it yeah nothing pretty much absolutely no measures until we had the first case and even then i think they still said well it's contained because we're we're tracking everybody and then at some point so well we're tracking most people but uh and then it's like ah, we're really not tracking anyone anymore so so they tried to they they tried a light lockdown on the province of brabant in the south and then about a week later i think they they started you know, asking people nicely not to shake hands. That's when the prime minister went on TV and like awkwardly shake the hand of the uh, health professional afterwards. And that became a nice meme. And then I think less than a week later, it got pretty serious and they started taking strong measures like closing, closing a whole bunch of things, uh, but not the schools. And there was a lot of arguing about that. They closed the schools too, because half the close, half the schools were closing themselves. So it's like, okay, maybe we should just tell them to close. Um, except for taking care of children of the essential uh, professions, which uh, is like a large list and they're debating that list. And, you know, yeah, there was and a very, then, there was a very lighthearted touch for, for quite a long time. It's, it, it, you were, I think you were paying attention already. When it, it still was, is right. I agree. I mean, yeah. Relatively to, to say Italy. For sure. Yeah. But it was uh noticeable very noticeable how sort of laid back the dutch government was and how laid back the advice was and the information it was all very sort of laid back and i was surprised about this at the time i didn't really understand why they were being i think they were looking because i think they were seeing it as just a flu it's a really bad flu but they they just were using the, um, the the standard plants that they have for bad flus and i think then they got this paper or, you know, these policy recommendations about herd immunity. And they probably read that, but just sort of half-assed read it and not, not really thoroughly think it through. And then when they did start to think it through, like looking at what kind of numbers you might be looking at, they're like, ah, maybe that's not a good idea. 
And so now they're, they're in between, you know, sort of in between, do we really want to extinguish this thing or do we want to have some sort of group immunity light? And so now we have an intelligent lockdown as it was called yesterday. Uh, they're, they're really confused. I well, think. They, well, they said they were going for group immunity, right? That, that hasn't changed, has it? Yes, it has. So, well, different kinds. So the group immunity was explained initially by the prime minister and others as, okay, 70% of the country needs to get this thing and then we're, we're good. But, you know, as people figured out, that's just, just a really bad idea. And so... So hang on, let's, let's, let's stop there for one second and explain why that is a bad idea. Why you think that's a bad idea or why do people think this is a well, bad idea? If you're looking at what, if, even a few percent of people getting into the intensive care, then you're just looking at a completely overloaded health system. So, yeah, so from that I, point of view, it's not possible. And then, you know, there's all sorts of unknown factors about long-term, long-term damage and, and, and the immunity itself might not even work. Yeah, right. So I, we, we, of course, don't have the exact numbers yet on how many people that get this virus actually go to the ICU. There are estimates, but, you know, it's all sort of still a little bit vague. But some of the estimates are like 5% of people, like 5% of cases go to ICU. And if you do the math on, you know, how many people in the Netherlands would have to get this for herd immunity, then it's like 10 million people. So then 5% is 500,000 people while we have 2,000 intensive care beds, right? That's, that's my sort of back yeah. on the napkin math, which makes me think how, what's, what are they thinking? How is this? And, and you have to spread it out linearly, right? You, you, people have to spend two or three weeks on it and then spend God knows how long, like, uh, re- reviving you know? yeah not you don't just walk out of the ic and you're like ah, okay i'm fine now it takes weeks right longer. exactly but what you're saying because i may have missed this then is that they have come to this realization my impression was they haven't even realized this yet but i i kind no, of no, they, they did but they didn't okay. come to the ultimate conclusion so they came they they within a few days people were saying this herd immunity thing is insane uh and the uh rfem uh, the uh, rfem the boss, sort of the health, I guess the Dutch CDC, he explained to the parliament folks Wednesday morning, I think last week, that when he said herd immunity, he meant more that herd immunity helps. Uh, so, so even a little bit of herd immunity helps with the other measures. It's not that we want to have the whole country go through herd immunity, but to have a couple of people who are immune kind of makes things easier. But it, it's oh. kind of a so So that's what I mean with herd immunity light. But then it doesn't make any sense anymore because you'll never, you know, you'll, you'll still need to keep taking measures forever based on, on the reasoning there. Because the, what the prime minister said initially was there's three scenarios. He, he really went on TV and explained all three scenarios, which is kind of nice. Uh, he said, first scenario is we go for this herd immunity thing, which he then explained either correctly but changed his mind or he explained it wrong um, and then the second scenario, but that scenario is like, okay, we, yeah. Second scenario was uh, just do absolutely nothing. So just let the whole thing flame. And that, that was, you know, really bad. Uh, but you would get a lot of immunity. And the third scenario was uh, a complete lockdown. But then he sort of took the most pessimistic interpretation of the lockdown and said, well, we'd have to do that for years until there's a vaccine. And as soon as we, we get rid of the lockdown, the thing just comes back and we start all, all over again. So the, there's a lot of problems with that, with that reasoning. Uh, 
Um, but at so, least he presented the options. But then, and it seemed like he was going for option one, which we thought was this 70% herd immunity, but that was dropped. So now we're not doing option one and we're not doing option two and we're not doing option three. So it's not really clear what we're doing. We're doing right, probably so, something that is relatively sane though in practice. Right, so I, I, I missed this then. That's interesting to hear. I, I missed that this, they sort of backtracked on this yeah. point. Uh, and I guess the same thing happens in England. I'll have someone from England on the show in a couple of days where they sort of came to the realis realization that herd immunity is going to come with like 250,000 deaths or something. And then they realize that's not really a, a good idea after all. But then there's... So that's what I mean with like a half-assed way of reading these papers. So, so you, I think what happened is these, the Ferguson and others wrote a paper, wrote a model, and they looked at uh, what happens if we let this thing spread, what happens if we uh, try to contain the outbreak a little bit, and what happens if we do a lockdown. And, and what they showed was that if you do a lockdown, the thing just comes back a little bit later. Um, and that inevitability um, and if you let it, you know, if you don't do anything, it's too fast. So they kind of said, okay, we have to do this in the middle solution, which then was interpreted as herd immunity. And that paper, as far as I know, is used by everyone. If, if you looked at the technical briefing that they gave to parliament, you could see the slides and they showed the same kind of, they showed the same charts. In the Netherlands? Yes. So they're okay, all so thinking... This, this, it, this paper was made by uh, British um, REVM, yeah, basically, I think, I think right? No, I think it's Imperial College. Oh, okay. And they've used this in for the Dutch policy as well now. Yeah, or they've but, read the paper. Yes, but what's not entirely clear to me is what the models are doing. But it may even be true that they're kind of collaborating. Like these these scientists are all sort of working on the same paper. I, I haven't done the LinkedIn reading yet of who is doing what. Uh, but my impression is that they're, they're essentially using the same the same model. Okay, so, so now so we're in this sort of half-assed state where it's not clear what the strategy actually is. That's what you're saying, right? Yeah, it's not. But if you look at the actual measures, you know, those kind of exist outside of a strategy too, right? Because uh, if you look at the actual measures, now the goal is to keep everybody 1.5 meters away from each other and to prevent any super spreader type of situation. So there are no festivals um, and no meetings above a hundred people, but everybody's supposed to work from home. Um, and, you know, last weekend, lots and lots and lots of people went to the beach and, and national parks. And so, you know, they had to take some stronger measures. So now we are in this uh, intelligent lockdown as it is called. Yeah, we're, and, and, we're very close to an actual lockdown. And our prime minister said, like, if this doesn't work, full lockdown would be the next step, yeah, right? But I'm, I'm personally quite skeptical about whether a full lockdown is more efficient than an intelligent lockdown. Um, because if you keep people physically in their home, they're, they're definitely more than 1.5 meters from each other, but you're, you're adding a massive restraint to people. Though if you just, you know, and you still have to do street surveillance to enforce that people stay home. So if, if your goal is just to enforce distance between people, you have the same surveillance need. You still need to look at the streets, what people are doing. But the nice thing is you don't have to ask them what they're doing. You just tell them to keep a distance. You don't, you know, you don't have to show a form, which just means it, you know, you have police touching everyone essentially, which is not good because then the police becomes a super spreader. Right. So, I, yeah, I, I think we're, you know, we're as close as to a lockdown as you can get uh, in terms of effectiveness, probably. And I think even going beyond it is, you know, becoming ethically so dubious that 
might just not be worth it. But yeah. we'll see. This is the natural experiment that we're still doing. Like in a few weeks, we'll know whether this works just as well as Italy or, you know, not at all. And we're completely screwed. Yeah. So do you think the plan now is to get the virus out of the country? I think the plan now is to get the number of cases down as much as possible without completely crippling the economy. And as long as the government has this AAA rating and the ability to borrow money for free, uh, it can basically bribe anyone it gets in a way out. So basically any company that has to shut down just gets paid for it. Everybody who's fired gets 90% of their last salary. That'll work until the AAA rating goes away. But at the same time, if this policy you know, seems credible, then investors might indeed think, okay, this government is not incompetent, so we'll just keep, you know, giving them free money. But, you know, I'd be worried about a situation where the AAA rating disappears and the government cannot compensate, cannot essentially bribe everyone to stay home. They're really just throwing lots and lots of money at, at people yeah. staying home. Before we get there, do you actually agree with the current policy? Do you think this is the right policy and this will solve I think it? the way it is now is, is as good as it gets. I mean, there's a few things that you could do better, like you can, you know, close a few more borders, maybe, you know, shut down more planes, but the planes are pretty empty. So I don't know. I, I think it's just, it's good enough, but we should have done this. You know, it's good, but two weeks too late. And that, that's the recurring theme. If, if we'd done this two weeks ago, it just would have been better. Uh, like we, I think they closed flights from Austria yesterday. It's like, okay, why not a month ago? And why are there still flights from the UK despite what we're seeing from there? Yeah, well, do you, think it, do you think it could have been done a month ago? That, that's uh, because I do agree with you. Like all of these measures should have been taken a month ago. But then the question is, would those people have, you know, gone along with that? No, so this brings the, the really uh, nasty problem of politics and, and reality. You have to have a number of dead people and like scared people, scared hospitals and, and emergency calls from doctors in your own country before you, you're, you're willing to do it. So I don't think they could have done what we're doing now two months ago. It's not possible, but they could have, I think they could have done it faster, but it, because I think uh, it took a long time for the government to decide that they really wanted to do this, you know, and that they, it was, yeah, and that they needed to start convincing people that it was necessary. Yeah. So, so I think it could have been done faster. And we know, I think we know from the Chinese numbers that there were some estimates that if they'd done it a week earlier, it would have been like 90% better. And two weeks earlier, 95% better. So it, one or two weeks earlier really, really matters. Yeah, I agree. Um, about the policy, I so the policy is one thing, and I, I do think they were a bit too late. And um but the other thing that has been bothering me a lot is not so much, or that's bothering me a lot more even, is not so much the policy itself, but the information we're, we're being given. Yeah, this is uh, really bad. The information about the virus, the information about the policy and the thinking behind it, it's very intransparent. We just have to sort of blindly trust the experts. And then the information that we're getting on the website of RFEM, for example, is wrong or at least very questionable like how does the disease transmit and like these things are at best questionable i would say at best uncertain and they're given a very certain answer on something they can't be certain of do you agree with this yeah it depends on which information right i mean they are experts 
on a lot of these topics. So they recently published a study about mask reuse, which is targeted at hospitals. And, and I would just trust that study, no problem. But when it comes to communication to the general public, I think they're, they're almost just don't have experience with it, maybe. Uh, just to, you know, to give practical advice. But I've, I've, I've seen some of it, even on television, which is just crazy. So they were talking about, people were asking, can I still fly somewhere? And, and they said, well, the air in planes is filtered. So yes, it's safe. So that's ridiculous. Because you know, if you're sitting next to somebody who's sick, it doesn't matter that the air, the new air is filtered, you're still gonna get sick. So, so they were definitely you know, not good at interpreting uncertainty. Yeah, that's, exactly. that is the recurring theme with a lot of things like how much distance do you keep or what about uh, maybe a better example with the, the children whether the children are contagious or not there's some studies that suggest that maybe they're not right but it, it's not anywhere near certain and the downside if you're wrong is pretty horrible yes so they're still saying it's fine for kids to play outside yes they're still saying that well another example would be for example uh, how con when you are contagious and when you aren't like the information on the website made it very like presented as a matter of fact that you're only contagious if you have symptoms well yes even though it's a fact that that's not true and that's been known for months so exactly that that's why i said like questionable at best or just wrong and i i find it very uh str strange or concerning that we're just seeing these very wrong um things presented by this sort of official health institute in the country that's uh, that's concerning to me i i think after the you know after the dust settles down there's going to be some studies in it we have the uh, ovfa the it's like this organization that does investigates uh, airplane crashes and uh, like prison fires and all these kind of things my guess is they're, they're gonna investigate this thing too and I, my guess is they're gonna find a lot of a lot of problems one of them might be that somebody staffs you have communication employees right that's a special job people who go on tv uh, usually not the actual experts and and they get talking points and they probably just get really bad talking points maybe there's another department that makes the, the talking points that you know that type of miscommunication yeah so before we uh before we started recording you were you were programming something or you were puzzling with something about this ferguson report i think I'm, well, I wasn't, I wasn't programming. So the thing is, we have this model from Ferguson, right? Which, which shows these really pretty charts and you can read the paper, but it just talks about a model. And it, but, you know, I'm a software developer, so I want to see that model, see the code, see if it's actually doing what the paper says it's doing. Um, and then we have a paper by Nassim Taleb and his friends from the systemic, New England Systemic Risk Institute they're they're kind of doing you know doomsday calculations on all sorts of things and they were absolutely brutal about this ferguson paper saying I, hey these they're terrible well do you want to actually read the feedback thing or I don't know no, i'd like you to explain it if you if you can yeah i'm i don't know all the criticism by heart because it's it's a lot but um one of the problems one of the biggest problems I think they're saying is that this model assumes um, a spread of R, you know, an R zero, and they've tried different values of R zero. I think they've tried a little bit of variation around it, but they haven't tried any extreme variations about it. And the thing is, what happens is you have one person who infects 
on average two people and then on average you know you get four etc um, but the question is what is the distribution of that and if the and if you assume it's some really nice you know gaussian curve around two you get very very different results than when it's a very fat tail distribution and a fat tail distribution what that means is that you might have a thousand people who don't infect anyone and one person who infects 2,000 people. That's still R0 of two, right? And if you don't- And that's, you don't, and that's what we appear to have seen in South Korea, for example, where this patient 31 infected. But we know that super spreaders are very important. Right. Now you can have a, you know, you, what we don't know is whether they're the only thing that matters. So there's a nice, very short talk between Taleb and, uh, and one of his colleagues there who wrote that paper. And what Taleb said, all we need to do is get rid of the fat tail. So all we need to do is prevent super spreaders. And then the whole thing will just, that's so much of the distribution is in that, that extreme numbers that, is, that when the extreme numbers are gone, the, the thing will just go extinct. But it may, that may not be true. It may be that you need to get rid of those extreme events and you need to get rid of um, more small scale infections. So you may have, you know, most people infect just one or two, and then you have a couple of these super spreaders. So the, the, you know, every, every bit counts. So you were, um, so that's, that's a major criticism because it turns, um, it turns out if you, if you take that into account, that random variation, um, the, the virus might actually go extinct. Um, Sorry, whereas what? the models, the models assume that the virus cannot go extinct under any, under any circumstances. So I think they even allowed for fractional people but that that's debated. That's the problem with the source not being there. Right. So you can, so one of the criticism I think was that you could have fractional people, which is nonsense. Um, but then I think the, the Ferguson and others denied that, which is fine, but you know, we, we'd like to be able to just test that. Okay. Um, so what you're saying is this is paper that's now being used to inform policy in the Netherlands, as well mm -hmm. as in other countries. This makes an assumption on, uh, this R naught and the distribution of it. So how many people a person can infect basically. And what you're saying is that their assumption doesn't take super spreaders into account enough. Yeah. That, that was one of the criticisms explicitly like it, the model does not account for super spreaders. Right. Um, it, and so that's why apparently they did not recommend um, closing festivals because that didn't have any effect because they didn't have super spreaders, but that's of course ridiculous. Um, you mean in the it, Netherlands? No, in, in the UK. Right. But I now, think in the Netherlands, they just use common sense and they're like, yeah, we're going to close the festivals. Right. Not based on the paper, but based on common right. <laughs> So the thing is, it, mm -hmm. go on. So, so the thing is you have common sense and you have a model, right? And when people do back of the napkin calculations, everybody gets angry. It's like, don't do a back of the napkin or Beville's uh, coasters. Don't do that. It's like, but, but when there's a super sophisticated model presented by super sophisticated professors, people think it's super accurate, but it could be just as wrong as this back of the napkin calculation. It's just wrong in a way that's a little bit more difficult to understand. So you have to be just as skeptical about it. And, and if something in the model makes, doesn't meet common sense, then maybe it's correct, but maybe it's wrong. So do you think that based on this, like, uh, let's assume that this critique is, uh, is correct, then would it make a difference policy-wise? Is there anything wrong with the policy right now based on this misassumption? 
what's really um, well the, the policy recommendation they make in their critique and you know you have to take that with a grain of salt i think because they didn't do some sort of counter modeling but but what they're saying is like a very strong lockdown for a few weeks will basically crush crush the virus um it's, it's kind of asymmetrical because it <clears throat> it can spread really fast when everybody's still connected but as soon as everybody's in their homes it's got nowhere to go so it'll go down really really fast mm-hmm. that's the idea um and then you want to do contact tracing which apparently was not included in the model mm-hmm. so that's another critique which is pretty critical do you agree with this is this the way to have, to deal with this well it sounds reasonable to me but obviously i don't know uh but it you know if combine that with seeing places like taiwan and and south korea that are probably not lying about numbers plus china that at least doesn't look like it's exploding you know if 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 china had 400 million infections today they i don't think they could hide that they're very good at propaganda but hiding 400 million infections like no way so it sounds like you know the lockdown does work in practice um and it sounds like contact tracing works because what else is keeping uh, and you know what else is keeping those contagions so low in countries that don't have a lockdown like taiwan and and hong kong now you know maybe it turns out we were wrong and we get a massive outbreak in all these places <clears throat> then i just run out of ideas and we're just screwed so i think i think yeah i think being fatalistic i think the main the main point that this critique of the paper was making is that um the fatalistic assumption that a lockdown doesn't work that is wrong so it's kind of a double negative it's not that lockdowns will work it is that the evidence that lockdowns don't work which everybody is citing the evidence is wrong so there is no evidence that lockdowns don't work does that make sense um hang on the the evidence the paper says the ferguson paper says mm-hmm. essentially says if you do a lockdown it's just going to explode afterwards so yes. don't bother right that's wrong But why is why is this wrong it's wrong because the model that they based the conclusion on is wrong in so many ways that you right. should not use the model okay got it and this so, is so part- you can throw the model away therefore the, you can throw the conclusion away right but that does not mean that lockdown does work yeah okay but then we have the empirical evidence that it definitely seems to work right okay i'm with you there um in some countries like italy uh israel they're getting to the point where they're implementing uh gps tracking types of solutions to see who's moving where who's meeting with who do you see this sort of stuff happening in the netherlands in the near future do you think that's a viable i, I think we have to separate two phases right the, the very short term everything it takes to fight the virus and then okay we've had our first lockdown we don't want this to happen again you know we're willing to take some measures but you know we're going to have pay much more attention to trade-offs like privacy so in the first phase i guess it won't because there's there's right now there may be just no point if you do a lockdown anyway uh then again maybe it's a good time to practice um so i don't know i doubt it um i'm i'm i saw that singapore had an app that at least had a privacy statement in the privacy statement was which i think is a good gesture right they they could just say privacy is not important we're at war they they said no it is important um they said this app will will figure will track who you're meeting with but that's only stored on the phone 
and then if 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 you are infected, then we ask you to reveal that, and we warn all these other people. So hopefully, in the long run, we can have applications like that that do all the tracking, but it's not centralized and it's only disclosed when it needs to be disclosed. Yeah. Um, but I don't see it happening here because like, right now I think the RIVM is completely uh, overwhelmed. They're just at capacity. And so they're ignoring, I mean, they, they launched a site where everybody could, you know, write down their symptoms and that site went down within a minute and hasn't come back in five days and they haven't even made a statement about it. So that tells me that you have, you know, a no limited number of employees that are completely swamped, probably working, you know, seven days a week, nonstop. And so they don't have time to hire people. They don't have time to ask for help and they're not used to asking for help. So they're not open sourcing anything. They're not, you know, throw, saying, Hey, this contact tracing, you know, we need more people. Somebody maybe can help with that. So, yeah, that's not happening. So I, and I don't see, that's a cultural change. that doesn't happen over a few weeks. Yeah, do you so my guess is we'll just do the lockdown, intelligent lockdown and then we'll see. Yeah. Do you actually know what's going on in the hospitals? Do you have any uh, no, thank goodness that? I haven't been there. Uh, what's happening in the hospitals? No, no. From what I'm hearing in the south, is they were running frighteningly low on capacity, uh, and the hospitals outside in the other provinces were initially reluctant to accept patients. Uh, but you know they were asked nicely to change their minds, and so as of a few days ago there were transports, ambulance transports and military transports to get as many patients as far north as possible because the spread there, the outbreak there is very small. So the idea is just to move people away. And, and then they, they still have plenty of capacity, but you know, they're, I think they're about at halfway capacity. Yeah. That, that is maybe to politicians, not scary, but to anybody who understands exponential growth, that is three days away from disaster. Yeah. Any at any moment, and so if it doesn't go up, yay! But if it does go up, you've got three days to double your capacity, and then it could just go up again by a factor three or a factor five in a few days. That's yeah. that's the randomness. That's also why the herd immunity doesn't work, because if if you somehow want to linearly, you know, titrate the entire population through this virus, you can't control it. So so you you'd have to aim at say fifty emergency beds being used at any time and then have a thousand that are unused just in case you fuck up and you're you get exponential growth for a few weeks and you're oops now we're at the maximum again and then you have to do a lockdown and then okay now we're at 50 again let's continue it at 50 and you have to do that for uh, 200 years or some crazy number so <laughs> if, if you really think it through it just doesn't make any sense but if you just see a paper by really fancy people with some nice charts in it then maybe it looks convincing Yes, that's that's my impression as well. They're they're magnitudes off from what's safe. Uh, <laughs> the same with architects, right? The, the the new buildings always look really fancy on the computer when you're looking at it from a drone, and and the air, the buildings are floating, and don't have an entrance. And yeah, right. Yeah. Um. No, they're um. They're actually driving buses now through the Netherlands. Uh, I know if you heard this, like the you know like public transport types of buses, but they're ambulance buses. Okay. And they're uh, using the helicopters now. There's everything, anything with wheels or with wings to drive um, sick people around uh, is, is being. Yeah, I, I think they know what they're doing, and they they have you know help from the military, and the military is used to this sort of stuff. So they have they're the good at improvising. That's what they do. So yeah. I'm not or worried that... about that. I mean, as long as they don't run out of capacity, I think the hospitals will do a fine job. 
but it's not up to the hospitals to make sure they don't run out of capacity. Yeah. How do you see uh, Bitcoin uh, act in all of this? Do you see, uh, we, we've so far only spoken about the virus itself, but uh, of course the economy is going wild, the, the money, the, the printer is going burr. So, so I've always sort of expected that at some point the economic system would you know, come crashing down. Uh, I, timing is really bad. I, pref- I would have preferred this to happen at some random time when there was no pandemic, but some, something's got to trigger it. So, you know, when I look at that type of collapse and the response from central banks, I'm kind of ignoring it because it's like, yeah, this was supposed to happen at some point. Mm. Um, And also it's just not the biggest, for me, it's not the biggest deal. Like I would like to get this virus under control and worry about the economy later. And central banks have been amazing at kicking the can down the road. People (laughs) said in 2007, this thing is going to collapse and you know, it almost collapsed. And then they just did something really stupid. We didn't solve the problem, but everybody could ignore it again for 12 years. So I kind of have faith in the ability of central banks and, and others to keep this game of pretense going for a little bit longer. And then when the pandemic is under control, then let the whole thing crash. That's fine, but not now. Uh, as for Bitcoin, I, you know, the price dropped by less than half during the worst market event ever. Basically, not just in Bitcoin's history, just ever in, in well, since maybe the 1920s. It might have. So uh, it could have vaporized. Yeah, I, I expected, you know, if something this big happens, maybe it just evaporates, which is nice. Then you can buy it really cheap. Um, so I think it did well, but we don't know. It might still go down, might still go up. I'm not a, you know, a price predictor magician. Uh, technically, though, it, I, as far as I can see, it doesn't care. It just blocks are produced, transactions move, n- nodes still work. Um, so that's good news. It, it, at least it doesn't add any headaches. It'd be really annoying if we had some sort of contentious hard fork like right now. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think uh, we might see central bank digital currencies soon as well. They're, they're trying everything at this point. Yeah, but those things are not like, I don't understand why people are so hyped up about that. They're just bank accounts with the central bank with some pseudo fake blockchain cargo cult thing. It's no, I, I agree. Extremely I agree. uninteresting. Yeah. Well, it could allow governments to uh, print even more money even easier. I, I think they, was, weren't they minting $2 trillion coins? Yes. Well, why would you need an easier way to print money than making $2 trillion coins? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't get I, much I think there's. We've had money printing technology for a long time. I mean, they tried it in Weimar. It was not, you know, didn't work too well, but they can do it. Yeah, well, that's the, that's the next uh, question, right? We have Bitcoin now, so can they do it? Yes, and the biggest problem is that I'd rather not have the whole thing collapse for yet another reason, is that if, if you have an outbreak like this, your rights are not very strong, to put it mildly. So in any circumstances, when a government collapses, they're going to try and confiscate money. But if it happens during a pandemic, they're going to try even harder to confiscate money. So this is a really bad time for Bitcoin to like go to values where Bitcoin has become an interesting target. Yeah, well, I would say it's not only governments are going to try even harder, but the general public might be even more in favor of it because, you know. Especially if people start gloating about it. Like I'm, I'm not on Twitter celebrating the Bitcoin price. I think that's weird. Right. But if, if people do, they're making themselves a target. 
because if 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 the whole thing goes to shit and you start bragging how rich you are, it's not not a good idea. Yeah, for ethical reasons, but also for practical reasons. I agree with that. All right, is there anything else we need to discuss before uh, we before we call an end to this? No, I I wanted to say one positive thing about the Dutch measures. I I like that they're really trying to keep it decentralized. So they didn't say everybody's now locked in their houses. They basically said every dear mayors of every city, um, keep people 1.5 meters away from each other. You figure out how, here are some things you're allowed to do. And if you need to do more, give us a call. Which yeah. I think is, is quite nice because in, a, you know, in the center of Amsterdam, I'm sure you need very different measures than in some remote little village yeah, where people don't even talk to each other. So they don't, you don't need any measures. Yeah, I I tend to agree with uh with that. I, my main my main issue with the Dutch government is the false information and uh, the the policy is one yeah. thing. I, they they should be transparent and no more misinformation, and that's that's what bothers me. Yeah, I don't think that's going to get any better because you know you these communication employees and whatever they're yeah. they're busy, so they're not going to change strategy all of a sudden. Yeah, this this whole like paternalist paternalistic way of communicating is super annoying they're, they're like just us we're the experts and if you if you ask them specific questions they're like well i don't know i'd have to ask the expert it's just literally like you know how you yeah. have to ask vitalik or you know some uh, i i, I want to be able to ask a question and no, i don't have to get an answer but i do have to get um let's say hey you should ask this person or you should look at this document Rather than say, no, trust us, computer says this. Yes, I, I uh, totally agree. It's terrible, especially when you know the experts are wrong on at least some really important things. Maybe not on everything, but they're definitely wrong. So you can't, you can't defer to them. Yeah, don't trust Fairvi, George. Yep. Sounds All good. Right. Thanks, and I'll uh, see you soon sometime, right. somewhere. Cheers.